Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to start with uh, one of my favorite all-time stories. I, I heard it from Reb Shlomo Karlbach, and it's from the Divrei Chaim, the Sanzer Rebbe, one of the greatest Hasidic masters. So the story goes like this. There was a, a person whose father, you know, sad to say, was, was very, very ill. He had tuberculosis, which was, you know, kind of just an, an awful condition. And his, his dad was very, very sick, and, and he didn't know what to do. And so he thought to himself, maybe if I bring him to the Sanzer Rebbe for a bracha, that, that might be the best thing. So he, he loads his very ill father. You know, there's horrible coughing with, with tuberculosis, and, and he brings him to, to the Sanzer Rebbe. And the Sanzer Rebbe looks at him, and he tells the son, give him a hot, cup of black coffee and the son goes are you crazy that, that that's the worst thing for him but that's what the Rebbe said so the son gives his father a cup of hot black coffee and the father gets better so sometime later the father is in even is even in worse condition in fact he's in such bad condition he can't even take him to to see the sons of Rebbe and the, the son remembers Ah, the Sanzer advised that I give him hot black coffee. So, so, so he gives him a cup of hot black coffee, and the father gets even worse. And now he, he, does, he has no idea what to do. He, he loads his dad in the cart. He takes him to see the Sanzer Rebbe. The Sanzer Rebbe says, what did you do? He says, I gave him a cup of hot black coffee. The Sanzer Rebbe says, that's the worst thing that you can do. So he says, so what should I do? And the Sanzer thinks, and he says, Give him a cup of hot black coffee. So he gives him a cup of hot black coffee and he gets better. It's the end of the story. So, so what's going on? What's going on? You see, our tzaddikim, our holy ones, our hachamim, they're, they're, they're seeing things on a, on a different level. And you know, the, the Avos, our, our holy fathers and mothers, are compared to mountains. You know, the, visually, maybe it looks like they're ending at the top of their heads and they're not so much taller or shorter than you are. But if you could actually really see what, what a tzaddik looks like, they're like a mountain and they're going all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way up, like thousands and thousands of feet up. And with that in mind, I want to share with you a visual that I had. Normally speaking, when you look out of the window of, an, uh, of a jet, you, you don't see much, M- meaning to say you, you'll see clouds. And, you know, often that's very interesting, but I'm talking about land masses right now. Or you'll see the ground, you know, hundreds or thousands of feet below, and it, it, it doesn't look like much. It's, it's pretty indistinguishable. So, so with that in mind, that's one of the reasons why this visual that I want to share with you right now is so striking for me. Years ago, I was flying to Israel, and we may have been over Switzerland or something like that. I'm not sure. But we flew over these mountaintops, and they weren't so far below the, the, the window of the airplane. So I, I could see it, you know, pretty well. And on one of these mountaintops, I saw a waterfall. 
and it was going into this lake. And I was amazed. I was, I was amazed by this because I thought, wow, you, you can't even get to that. You, you can't even get to that waterfall. What would it be like to drink that water? Right? Like imagine how crystalline and pure that water is. And, you know, the Torah is compared to water. And so let's put all these images that I've been discussing together and, and now we'll begin to communicate. You see that Siddiquim are like these mountains. And at the top of their, their spiritual heights, they're receiving water, they're receiving Torah at this pure, super pure level. And so when you learn Torah from a tzaddik, you actually get to drink that water from the top of that mountain, from that waterfall. Do you understand? Do you understand what it is? When you open up a safer, when you open up a holy book, and you're able to, to draw and to receive their das, their heavenly wisdom, that, that's what it is. You're drinking from those, those mountain peak waterfalls. And it's not just waterfalls from... from today that are going on right now. Can you imagine drinking from waterfalls for hundreds and thousands of years ago and it tastes just as fresh and pure and clean? That's what it is when you open up the book of Atzadik. And I'll tell you something else, something unbelievable. When you learn Torah from Atzadik, you get a passport into their tent, into their heavenly yeshiva, into the next world. You know, there's certain reaches of heaven that we're just not eligible to attend because we don't have the merit. Just simple as it is. But if you've learned the Torah of that tzaddik, if you've learned the Torah of that tzaddik in this world, you get a passport to enter into the tent into the next world. So what I, the reason why I'm telling you this is because I want to discuss the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And that was an event that happened 3,300 years ago. But what I'm trying to emphasize, and what all of the sages say, it's all over the Torah, this thought, the Torah has never stopped being given. In other words, it's not, as much as it's a historical event, it's an ongoing event. And Mount Sinai takes many shapes. It's a mountain, but it's also these holy tzaddikim that are with us today and have been with us throughout our history. And so this experience of drinking these heavenly waters and connecting with Mount Sinai and connecting with the giving of the Torah is a very real present day event. And you have to find those tzaddikim and, and you can receive from them or you can open up their books and you can receive from them. And you can participate in that Mount Sinai experience, which is going on until this moment right now. Now, the Balaturim says something wonderful. He brings a gamatria, which is, it's more than just numbers. It's a whole amazing visual. Okay, listen to this. We know that at Mount Sinai, what happened? Heaven came down to earth. Right? I heard Rabbi Dean Steinsaw say something amazing. I heard him speak one time, and th these words have stayed with me ever since. 
He said, for thousands of years, people were speaking to God. You know what happened at Mount Sinai? God spoke back. Isn't that incredible? God spoke back. So now listen to this. Heaven came down to earth. God spoke back. Now listen to what the Balaturim says. The word Sinai in Hebrew is the same numerical value, the same gematria as the word sulam, which means ladder. Do you get it? Sinai, the Sinai experience was a ladder connecting heaven to earth <laughs> and earth to heaven. Is, is there anything that can be more crystal clear than that? Sinai was a ladder. Same, same, same number, which means that the, the DNA of these words are, are, are the same. So if you want to reach the heavens, the way to reach the heavens is through what was revealed at Mount Sinai. These are the Torah and the mitzvot. These are, remember, Reb Shlomo says that the mitzvot, which are commonly translated as commandments, for better or for worse, he, he said they're, they're heavenly pathways. The mitzvot are heavenly pathways. Each mitzvah is, is this divine road through which you connect with God. Okay? Now, now listen to this. Shlomo Amelech, King Solomon, says there's nothing new under the sun. Or as R. Crumb said, "'Twas ever so." <laughs> right? Whatever, you know, the, the French like to say, the more things change, the more things say the same. Right? These are all kind of the same thoughts. There's nothing new under the sun. But you ready for what I heard in the name of the Sfas Emes? You ready for this? There's nothing new under the sun, but above the sun? <laughs> above the sun, it's constantly new. Above the sun, it's constantly new. You know, we say in the, in the prayers, Or Chadash Al Tzion Ta'ir which means a shine, a new light on Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. So we're asking God, shine a new light on, on, on Zion. So, but Rab, Rabbi Wolfson, Shlita, says, Or Chadash means something very different. He says, it doesn't mean a new light. It means a light of newness. Do you hear the difference? It means that the newness, the, the creation and recreation of the world, this ever newness which exists above the sun, God, bring, bring that to the Jewish people, that we can constantly, constantly experience your oneness, constantly become refreshed and revitalized in your Torah, right? You know, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov gives the best advice in the world. If you hit a wall, and all of us hit walls, sometimes multiple times a day, he says, begin again now. <laughs> in other words, so, much to, so many times we get so immersed in the problem and we're trying to kind of like undo all the knots, but there's another approach. Begin again. Just start from scratch right now. Start from scratch. 
I'll tell you an experience, and and I've I've talked with I've talked with at least one colleague about this who who absolutely is a, a very firm believer of this, and I've seen it in my own life as well. Sometimes one of the most frustrating things in the world, and I think many of us can relate to this, is when you lose a file on your computer, or if you're editing a piece, you you lose a cut, and you've put so much work into it, and now it's gone. And it's, wow, that, that, that can be really, really hard. But can I tell you the good news? My experience and this close colleagues of mine experiences is that every time you put it together again, it comes out better. There's something about just you begin again and somehow you're now taking all of your learned lessons plus the new discoveries and what comes out in the new version is better. It's just clearer than the, than the, than the last version. Isn't that, isn't that something? So, so what's the teaching? I want to put together all of these thoughts right now and tell you the following. You can take that ladder, that sulam, right? Which is the same number as sina. And you can reach to the newness that's constantly going on above the sun. And through the Torah, you can bring it back down. You can bring it back down to the here and now. And now let's go even deeper into this. When the Torah was revealed, one of the amazing details, you know, the the Midrashim are absolutely spectacular in terms of the spiritual pyrotechnics that were going on with the revelation at Mount Sinai. One is, first of all, just so you should just know for our just Judaism 101, it was Shabbos day that the Torah was given at dawn. Why is it important that it was given on the Shabbos day? Because the fabric of time and space on Shabbos is different from the other six days of the week. You know, the last thing that God created, most people would say, well, look, I'm, I'm analyzing like the story of creation and everything like that. It seems like the last thing God created were was man. But then if you kind of look, that's on the sixth day. If you kind of look, well, wait a second. After man, God creates woman. So I guess... Women are the very last creation. But then if you look a little bit further, you see the real last creation was Shabbos. Shabbos and Shabbos is Shlemus, right? We say Shabbat Shalom. Shalom is, is, means completeness, right? So the very last creation was Shabbos. And Shabbos is different from the other six days of the week. It's, it's, it's a different creation. And the visual that I always like is that if you imagine rolling out a carpet, so you roll out a carpet, and that's the first six days of the week. In other words, they're made out of the same sp- time-space fabric. But the seventh day of the week, Shabbos is made, it's a separate creation. It's made out of something else. And one of the unique qualities of Shabbos is that it doesn't have any boundaries. See, one of the great theological riddles, right, is if, if the Torah is bigger than the world, then how did God fit the Torah into the world? <laughs> and the answer is God gave the Torah on Shabbos, <laughs> which is a day without borders, without boundaries. Right? This is one of the reasons why your soul just flies on Shabbos, because all of the boundaries have been taken away, because 
it's a, it's a different creation. It's not your normal day. In fact, you know, we have a little hint to it in that all days of the week are 24 hours. But halachically, according to Jewish law, we keep Shabbos for 25 hours. <laughs> it's just a tiny, tiny, tiny little hint that this day is constructed differently in its essence than the other days of the week. Okay. So, so we know God gave the Torah on Shabbos. That's one interesting detail. Another interesting detail is when God spoke with every word that God spoke, the entire world was filled with this beautiful scent that God drew down from the upper garden of Eden, right? And then the rabbis ask an amazing question. If the entire world was filled with this beautiful aroma, how did God have room when he spoke again to bring more beautiful aroma if the world was already saturated with aroma? <laughs> you see, well, all of these things are working on the, the, the deepest levels. So what does that mean exactly? But I'm just trying to just paint a picture of just all the awesome things that were going on. So, so it says God blew away that aroma from the garden to the Garden of Eden to make the Garden of Eden even more of an amazing place. And then he brought in a new scent. But anyway, that's very deep. We won't go into it right now. When God spoke, our souls flew out of our bodies, right? And then God had to bring us back to life with the dew that he's going to bring us back to life with at the end of days. And what are one of the things that we saw when our souls flew out of our bodies? You ready for this? We saw that the Torah didn't just exist in this dimension, but it existed in the upper dimensions as well. When our soul flew out of our bodies, we saw that the angels are also learning the same Torah that we're learning. That the entire universe is made out of Torah. Not only that, but when God spoke the entire Mount Sinai, broke out in flowers. And it says that we saw God's words, right? Normally speaking, you just can hear words. You don't see words. But the Shalah HaKodesh, one of our greatest rabbis, explains that when God spoke, every word that he said got spelt out in the sky in letters of fire, Right? so that we were actually able to see God's words, because as God spoke, they became words of fire that we could read, that we could see as well as hear. Okay, a chauffeur blast got louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. It says when a human blows the chauffeur, it gets louder and then it gets softer. But this chauffeur blast at Mount Sinai only got louder. Okay, so there were so many things going on, but I want to key in on one, one special thing, which is it says also that the mountain, by the way, lit on fire, and that that fire went all the way up to the heart of heaven. And it's very interesting that this idea of the heart of heaven. You see, one of the things that we learn is that there is a heart of heaven. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, you get into a taxi, where would you like to go? Heaven. Oh, which neighborhood? The heart of heaven. 
You know, our hearts are like the two tablets, are like the luchos. And we have a left side of our heart and a right side of our heart. And then there are also two tablets. Isn't that interesting? And you know something? The entire Torah is contained within the two tablets, within the Ten Commandments. The last letter of the Torah is Lamed, of the word Yisrael. The first letter is Bez, like Breshis. Bez and Vez is the same letter. So you know that spells Lamed Vez, it spells Lev, heart. So just like the two tablets which contain the whole Torah, which were given from the heart of heaven, spells the word heart. So our heart, the Torah is written on our heart as well, which is also a lave. That's the Hebrew word for heart, lave. That's our heart too, which is also shaped like the two tablets. Okay. Now listen to this. One more detail, and I want to go into a little bit more, more depth on this one. It says, when God gave the Torah, the mountain was smoking, right? It wasn't just on fire. There was smoke coming out of it. Now, what is, what is smoke? In Hebrew, it's the word ashan. Now, listen to how deep this is. Listen to how deep this is. And this is going to be our on-ramp into the next part of the talk, okay? Because we're going to talk about the structure of Parshish Yisra, and we'll get very deep, but but now we're now we're tar- starting to zero in. Okay, this word Shan is is very amazing. I'll spell it for you. It's Ayin Shin Nun. Okay, and what it stands for is the three dimensions of reality. All of reality can be boiled down into three categories, says the Sefer Yetzirah, one of our earliest, greatest mystical texts, okay? And that is space, time, and soul. And now let's revisit that word, Ashan, that the mountain was spoken. It's spelled Ayin Shin Nun. Ayin is the first letter of the word olam, that's space. Shin is the first letter of the word shana, which means time. And nun is the first letter of the word nefesh, or neshama, which means soul. So do you see the mountain was smoking? In other words, all of the elements of reality, space, time, and soul, we're about to be accessed and we're about to learn how you can access every dimension of reality with the Torah and the mitzvahs. That's what's going on. So now, with this in mind, I want to tell you something, if you don't know, and it's a very interesting, let's just say a very very interesting the way God decided to structure the Parsha of the Torah, the portion of the Torah that contains the revelation of Mount Sinai. Remember, the revelation of Mount Sinai is the critical event in the history of the world. Besides creation and besides the ultimate redemption, 
it's it's the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. That that that's it. And remember, the Torah existed before the world itself was created. That's something that the Talmud teaches us. In fact, the Talmud goes even further. It gives us a number: nine hundred and seventy-four generations before the world was created, the Torah existed. Okay, how they come up with that number is is very interesting because. The Torah was given in the 26th generation, so that adds up to a thousand. And anyway, the the, the rabbis have a, a a whole teaching on this. But but the point the point is that the Torah existed before the world itself was created. Now, I always feel like we need to explain what that means because it's very important and it's very re- revelatory. It doesn't mean that there was a Torah scroll floating in outer space because there was no time or space. (laughs) So what does it mean that the Torah existed before the world was created? So the Torah was God's dream for the world. The Torah was God's plan for the world. In fact, the Zohar says that the Torah itself is the blueprint of creation. So before you have a building, you have a blueprint. Before you have a world or a universe, you need a blueprint or a vision. So the Torah before the world was created was God's vision for the world that he wanted to create. Now let me tell you something. This is a a new idea. A new idea. You ready? When an architect envisions the house that he wants to make, He has a vision for the house, and then he makes the house. But he doesn't make the house out of the vision. (laughs) He makes the house out of wood and brick and cabinets and cement, but not out of his thought. When God created the world, he had a dream, a vision for the world. And now you're ready for this? And then he constructed the universe out of his dream for the world, (laughs) out of his vision for the world. Do, Do you hear how unbelievable that is? That means that the entire world is made out of Torah. Now, that is a very fundamental idea that if you know it, will radically transform your understanding of what Torah is. Because, sad to say, most people think the Torah is a book. It exists in book form. (laughs) But it's more than a book. The Torah is the fabric of the universe itself. And the book form of it is the infinite compressed into the finite. (laughs) That's the book form. And if you were to take each letter of the Torah, and if you were to climb above, like imagine each letter of the Torah had a thread of light going from the letter all the way up into the heavens, and you climbed that thread of light, you would go from dimension to dimension to dimension, and you would see the angels studying this same Torah in every dimension, because the entire world is made out of the Torah. That's why it's so important to do mitzvot. 
These mitzvot are not just simple, do this, don't do that, but you're literally accessing all of the heavens, all of the universe, and you're shaping and you're refining and you're harmonizing all of the energies of the world when you do these mitzvot. That's why it's so important. You're not just fixing your soul. You're fixing the entire world. And you're not just fixing the world. You're completing the world. Because remember, this is our mission. God is still in the process of creating the universe. And we're partners with him in terms of finishing it up. That's what we're doing. That's why it's so important. And the utmost is when you keep Shabbos. Because when you keep Shabbos, remember, Shabbos is that ultimate harmonizing of everything. Right? That, that just imprints and echoes through the universe in the sweetest, most divine way. Okay. So now, I'm going to tell you something about Parshas Yisro. Parshas Yisro is, is where this revelation takes place. The revelation of the Torah takes place. And the Torah itself, we don't really get to the story of the revelation of the Torah until the fourth Aliyah, right? Each, each Parsha is divided into seven subsections, right? Called Aliyahs. And you would imagine that if something as important as the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai, that the, the Torah, let's just start with a bang. The Jews arrive at Mount Sinai. Right? That happens in the fourth Aliyah. So about halfway through the Parsha, we get to this event. Now, that's a little bit curious. What's going on in the first three Aliyahs? Something more important? Something more important than, than, than the subject at hand? Well, let's get into it. It is the arrival of Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law. And we're going to go into more detail on that in a moment. But Moshe's father-in-law is giving Moshe advice about setting up a court system. Okay. Okay, there's, believe me, there's a lot going on in terms of their interaction. We're going to get into it more. But that basically takes up the first three aliyahs of this, of, of this, of this portion. And then we get to the Jews arriving at Mount Sinai. Now, you want to hear something really interesting? What if I were to tell you that Rashi and most of the commentators say that Yisro's arrival, this whole event described in the first three portions of, of this chapter, which has the revelation of the Torah, is chronologically out of order. <laughs> that Yisro actually arrived after the Torah was given. But that God wanted us to put the whole arrival of Yisro back in time. <laughs> he wanted to rearrange the structure of time so that Yisro's arrival, which happened after the Torah was given, appears in the Torah before the Torah is given. All right, so now any time, according to the Ramban, we have to assume that the Torah is written chronologically and that all of the events lay out 
in, in this narrative sequence as it's presented to us. And that only in certain instances are there events that are out of order in the Torah, time-wise. So now if something is out of order in the, in the Torah time-wise, then you have to ask yourself a big question. Why did God want to do that? <laughs> in other words, what lesson is being taught to me by putting it out of order? And so now I'd like to make some suggestions of what's going on. First, let's start with pshat. Now, you know, there are four basic levels of analyzing Torah. The first is pshat, that's the basic thing. Next is remez, which is that this portion of the Torah really connects to another portion of the Torah or another teaching. Okay, that's interesting, like links and hyperlinks and things like that. Okay, good. Then you have drash, like a drasha. That's now a homiletical interpretation. In other words, it's sort of like, well, this teaches us a lesson. And then now we're going to learn a lesson that, that, that can be derived from this. Okay? So we're not talking about the events of the Parsha so much. And then you have the fourth letter level, which is called Sod, which is the secrets of the Torah. And now if you take the first letter of those four letters, of those four levels, it spells out the word pardes, which means an orchard, right? And in ancient lingo, an orchard was like this oasis, like an orchard was like this fabulous place. Now, many linguists say that the that the word pardes, which is Hebrew, and it's talking about all the different levels of Torah. You ready for this? Is actually where the English word for paradise comes from. Isn't that interesting? Paradise, which is in English like the ultimate blissed out construct, right? Paradise, ah, I'm in paradise, right? comes from the word pardes, because when you're accessing all the levels of the Torah, what could be more beyond? What could be more paradise than that, right? Now listen to this. I forgot who said it. I want to say it's the Chida. I'm not sure. But, you know, there are those people who in their well-intentioned foolishness dismiss the secret aspect of the Torah, the sod, this this deepest level, right? And just because they, they they don't understand that the Torah is the fabric of the universe, so they they just they they can't wrap their minds around it. So they're a little bit dismissive. So listen to what this Rav said. If you take this this acrostic pardes, but you remove the sod, you remove the secret level, right? Then what it spells out is parod, which means donkey. <laughs> so we're not we're not calling anyone any names, but it's his insight. It's his insight, and you know, it's a uh, it's a good one. It's a good one. So, so in any proper study of the Torah, you have to begin with the pshat. You have to begin with the simple meaning of the text, and that's why we always want to go to Rashi because Rashi is the master of pshat. So, so it's, it's essential to, 
to always look to Rashi before you want to go deeper, right? So, so anyway, I'm not quoting Rashi here. The interpretations that I'm giving you right now of why Yisro's arrival is out of order in this Parsha are mine, but I want to begin with what I would call a Pshat explanation. So, I'll just tell you how I arrived at it. I was, I was looking at the, at the Parsha Shabbos morning, and I was going to give a little talk on it, and I thought to myself, you know, I really want to focus on, in, on the giving of the Torah. So let me just turn to the page inside the Parsha where, where that happens. And so I got to the Jews' arrival at Mount Sinai, and then I realized something, which I've already sort of given you a preview to, which was, wow, this Parsha is really structured in an interesting way, because everything before the Jews arriving at Mount Sinai is all Yisro's advice to Moshe about setting up a criminal justice system, a court system. And I thought to myself, so, you see, in order to hold the light, and the ultimate light is Torah, you need vessels. So that's why the Parsha of Yisro's interaction with Moshe is coming before the revelation of the Torah. You establish court systems, and once you have a structure of court systems, then you can receive the light of Torah, because now you have an infrastructure in order to apply the vision of Torah. So I, I thought that that was really interesting, because one of the basic structures in terms of creation is in order to hold the light, you need vessels. And let me just tell you how essential a structure that is. Well, let's start in terms of just human beings in the here and now. You know, a lot of times, for better or for worse, in order for people to appreciate what the Torah is saying, a lot of times they have to go through hard times. A lot of times, by the way, people can be overwhelmed with thanks and praise. That's what happened with me, you know, in terms of my own life. I, I, I just wanted to say thank you to God. But the events of a person's life, like imagine a, 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 a cube of clay, right? Soft clay, but in a big cube of it. You know, if you put your fist down on top and press down, you can make a vessel. Well, that's oftentimes what the events of our life are doing with us. Sometimes they're hard times, and they're really kind of pressing down on us, but... But the net effect of that is now we have this vessel to hold something higher because we appreciate there's something more going on. Sometimes it's great times. It's like, wow, I'm so overwhelmed with thanks. But again, it just, it's making this deep impression on us and it's, it's turning us into a vessel in order to hold a higher light that we weren't capable of holding before these events happened to us. Okay, so that's how we're shaped into vessels by the events of our life so that we can hold this light. That's one example. But this essential structure of light and vessels 
exists in the heavens as well. And now let's just go very macro, okay? Get a little cosmic right now. You see, in the higher reaches of heaven, the way first God takes an aspect, this outer garment, so to speak, of his light, and in this very E equals MC squared Einsteinian way, God takes light, which is energy, and he slowly transforms that into mass, which becomes the universe. But the process that that takes is light into vessels. Now, let me just tell you the far out thing right now, which is at this highest level of light, the vessels for the light, you ready for this? Are also made out of light. <laughs> but it's a light that's just like a little bit, and excuse my conversational way of putting this, the vessel for the light is also light, but that vessel of light is a little bit thicker light. Okay? I'm not going to get any graduate degrees for talking about thick light, but anyway, I think you know what I mean. But let me just explain it a little bit better, okay? You see, there are four essential elements which contribute to the materialization of that light. Air, water, fire, and earth. And these four elements exist in very elemental forms. In other words, when we're talking about these four elements in the highest reaches of heaven, it's not water that you can drink, but it's an aspect, uh, the essence, the highest aspect of water, the highest aspect of fire, right? It, it hasn't become fire as we know it yet. But what's happening now is that the light is going down into a vessel which contains a little bit of these elements. And now that is now going to go down into another vessel, which is also made out of light. But now it's going to have a little bit more of these elements to it. And then slowly, 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 as this light de descends into vessels also made of, out of light, but now more materialized light, eventually the transition is going to be made where materiality itself is going to exist, and that's going to become the universe itself at some point. But what I'm trying to show you here is that this structure of light into vessels is not something that just happens in our own lives through experiences where we become shaped and we become impacted so that we become a vessel through our own experiences that can hold a higher light, but that this same dynamic is going on in the highest reaches of heaven itself. So with that in mind, let's revisit what I just shared with you. That before the Torah is given, we need a court system in order to hold that light. So that's the pshat explanation that I would give you why the, this, this event of Yisro, which happened after the Torah happened, why God placed it beforehand because we need vessels to hold the light. Let me tell you one more um, instance, because it's really impacted the world that we live in today, okay? And um, I'm talking about contemporary America, 
right now, but but let me just backtrack to when when the family of Jacob, the 70 souls of Jacob, descended into Egypt. There's one line there, which you can read past very quickly because it's not fleshed out, but if you look into the sources, you, you, you see actually what's going on, and it's, it's very, very interesting. It says that Yehuda went down into Egypt in advance of the family. So why is that detail listed? Why is that significant? Because it's because the rabbis teach that Yehuda set up yeshivas for when the Jewish people came down into Egypt, there would be an infrastructure that was present for the Jews to be able to go into Torah study because those yeshivas, that educational infrastructure had been established in advance of their arrival. And that that is what we should learn from that in terms of all of our travels throughout our lives, that those those yeshivas, those educational systems have to be set up and have to exist before we arrive. In contradistinction to what? To the American exile. To the American exile where there were no yeshivas set up. So that when the Jews arrived in America, garnished, as they say, garnished, mid-garnished. It was nothing on top of nothing in terms of anticipating our arrival, which is why to this day we have a plague of ignorance. And it really wasn't until the, the survivors after World War II came into America and largely to Brooklyn that they set up a system mostly just for survival. But now it's in place. Now it's in place. And now you see the domino effect because, you know, it's not happy news to share, but there's this very schizophrenic story that's unfolding in terms of the Jewish people in America today. Which is, on the one hand, if you look at these sociological studies that are being pioneered by the Pew Research Center, PEW, you see that there's a, a massive bloodletting going on in terms of the souls of the Jewish people. And millions of people are, are, are assimilating, are intermarrying, are not affiliated, are disappearing because they don't know A from B. It's tragic. It's tragic. On the other hand, you have a story of the blossoming of the Torah community in America. Blossoming. And these two things are going on simultaneously. And there's no secret as to what the difference between the two are. One are connected to the Torah, and one are not connected to the Torah. Now, on a soul level, we're all connected to the Torah. And one person isn't more or less Jewish than the other. You know, if you have a Jewish mom, you're Jewish. Period. End. You're keeping this, you're keeping that, you're not keeping this, you're not keeping that. You're 100% Jewish and you're 100% Jewish. No one's more Jewish than the other. But will the next generation even exist as Jewish? That, that's the existential question at play. Your, your Judaism is not in question. But what about your children or your grandchildren? And it's no magic formula. It's no lucky roll of the dice. It's no lucky lottery ticket winning thing. It's a very clear connection. You're either connecting yourself to the Torah or you're not. You're connecting yourself to the actual mitzvot or you're not. It's, it, I wish it were more mystical than that.
I wish it were more magical than that, but it simply isn't. And all of that is predicated on having an actual education. That's what it is. Okay. So now, so again, just in case you lost the point, let's review the point. It's another example of vessels to hold the light. That this advanced guard, which sets up the learning institutions, that's the vessel to hold the light of the people that are coming in. That, that's, that's the point. That's the point. Okay. So now let's go way deep. You ready? Let's go. Let's now go way, way deep. Why in this most epic event in human history, the giving of the Torah itself, which existed before the creation of the world itself, why is this being given in the middle of the Torah portion? Why is this event of Yisro's arrival, right? Now, we gave a very nice explanation, I think, I mean, I hope, which is that we're creating a vessel, a whole court system, a vessel to hold the light. Very nice, very nice. But why is this event, which took place <clears throat> afterwards, after Mount Sinai, why are we going back in time and putting it before Mount Sinai? Okay, so now I'd like to suggest another reason. <clears throat> Did you know that according to Kabbalistic thought, that Moshe was the reincarnation of Hevel and that Yisro was the reincarnation of Cain, Cain and Hevel, or in English, Cain and Abel? Do you know that Cain and Abel are meeting again? The brother, Cain, who murders Hevel, are meeting again? I mean... But let's, let's, you know, Cain gets a bad rap for good reason, right? It's the first murder in the Torah, for goodness sakes. But let's, uh, let's learn a little bit about Cain, okay? First of all, something very, very interesting, just so we should just know in our own lives, okay? Which is, it says in the Torah that they argued and then Cain killed Hevel, right? Cain killed Abel. Everybody wants to know what they argue about. And I don't know in whose name I saw this, but I thought it was a, a remarkable insight. He said the Torah doesn't tell you what they were arguing about because it doesn't matter what they were arguing about. When one person is mad at another person, you can't do anything right if you're the one on the receiving end of that anger. Do you understand? Do you see the way you looked at me? How, how do I look at you? And maybe you didn't look at him wrong. Did, why did you say it that way? What, what did I say? <laughs> Someone who's angry at you will find something to be angry at you about. That's the point. And that's a remarkable insight. That's why it doesn't tell you what kind was angry about. Okay. Having said that, though, the rabbis then give different explanations of what the, the, the subject matter might be. 
And I want to zero in on one of those. But first, one more thing about Kai. And I think this is an, just essential to know. And I heard this from Rib Shlomo, and it's one of the saddest, most heartbreaking Torahs I ever heard in my life, okay? Which is that Cain didn't know that he was killing Hevel. He didn't know. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because there had never been a killing before. These are the, basically, you've got the parents, you've got Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Chava, and they're the kids. Like, what is he supposed to know about murder? And now listen to this. Totally heartbreaking. I learned from Reb Shlomo that after Cain killed Hevel, he sat at his feet for three days and he kept on saying, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. He didn't know what he did. He didn't mean to do what he did. Heartbreak, heartbreak, heartbreak. Okay. So Cain, the killer, becomes Yisro. Moshe is Hevel. And Reb Shomo explains something amazing. Because the Torah gives us a detail which shows us, for me, you know, there, there are different ways that you can see the humility of Moshe Rabbeinu, the humbleness of Moshe. Different ways. But this is one of the most dramatic ways. It says that Moshe went to greet Yisro and that he bowed down before him. Now, remember, Let's just think about that for a moment. This portion is taking place after the Torah has been given at Mount Sinai. Which means Moshe Rabbeinu has just been literally in heaven. Heaven descended down into earth, has been talking with God. And now his father-in-law comes. How many of us would say, your father-in-law is here. And if you had just been in heaven talking to God, you'd say, oh yeah, you know, I can see him. Like later, uh, later this afternoon would be great. Between 3 and 3.15, have him stop by my tent. <laughs> Very happy to see him. <laughs> or we'll make some room. Let's move the 5 o'clock up and then we'll, we'll make some room. Or, oh, I can't wait to see him. And of course, Yisra would come to see Moshe. Can you imagine the humility of Moshe Rabbeinu that after that event, he goes to Yisro and bows down to Yisro? To give Yisro honor? To give another human being honor? What is going on in terms of Moshe Rabbeinu's expanded consciousness about the preciousness of every single person in the world. So the path of Yisro, just in terms of his own personal spirituality, is that he was the master of worshiping every idol under the sun and then converts to Judaism. And, and so that's, that's an amazing thing. And what's perhaps even more amazing is that the Torah portion, which 
in which the Torah itself is given. Remember, this is the climactic event of the Torah itself, is the revelation of the Torah itself, is named after him. And I think that there are many lessons that we can learn from this, but I, what, what, one of them that I'd like to say is that it's a demonstration that we're all God's children. Okay, that's very, very important. We have something called the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, which means the seven universal commandments. By the way, one of them is to have a system of justice. So it's very appropriate that that is what we're learning about with Yisro, who becomes Jewish, okay? Because this is one of the mitzvahs that's incumbent upon all of humanity. But what many people think, and this is not incorrect, but it's missing the entire point, is that Jews have 613 commandments, and the, the rest of humanity has seven commandments. That's not inaccurate, but it's missing the point. Let me rephrase that so that you get what's really going on here. We're all God's children, and we all have mitzvot in the Torah. That's the point. That's the point. We all have a share in the Torah. That's the point. And if you think about it, this is answering a giant question, which is if the world itself is made out of the Torah, that means every inhabitant of the world has to have a share in the Torah. And that, in fact, is what we see. Not only that, but it also means that all of the righteous of the world have to have a share in the world to come, in heaven. And that's what the Torah says. And that's something I I think we can be endlessly proud of, especially in this age that we're living in right now, which totally prioritizes inclusion, that it's very important to understand that, that, that Torah itself has this expansive consciousness where everyone has a share in the Torah and everyone has a share in paradise, right? Which is a formulation of the levels of the Torah. Because otherwise, if you're part of a religion that says that unless you accept our guy, you don't have any share in anything, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Seriously, what are you talking about? How can that possibly be true? How can you be speaking truth? You know, Reb Shalom brought, Oliver Shalom, one of his favorite teachings, unbelievable teaching, is that at Mount Sinai, during the revelation of the Torah, depending on your spiritual level, everyone heard the same thing, but people heard the same information at different levels, according to where they were holding, in terms of spiritual refinement. When it says, excuse me, when it says don't kill, the people on the lowest spiritual level heard don't murder another person, don't take a life. The people on a higher spiritual level than that what they heard was don't embarrass another person in public because that's a form of killing them, right? But the people on the highest spiritual level heard don't ignore another person because when you ignore another person, that's a little bit like taking their life. So imagine what's going through Moshe's mind that Yisro shows up. 
And Moshe goes to greet him and to bow down before him. But we're just scratching the surface right now. Let's go deeper. So Reb Shlomo said, you know, the event, just, you know, just in terms of pshat again, the simple meaning of the text between Cain and, Cain and Hevel, what happened? Cain offers a sacrifice and God doesn't take it. But Hevel gets a great idea, which is, let's not just bring an offering to God. Let's bring the best of what we have. And then God takes that. And Cain gets like really rattled by that, you know, because he feels rejected by God and upstaged by his brother. And, you know, it's really, it shakes him and he reacts violently. And we know the end of that story. Okay, but do you know what was missing, says Reb Shlomo? Where did the idea of making an offering to God come from to begin with? This was Cain's idea. In other words, the essential, the essential chiddush, the essential breakthrough in terms of avodas Hashem, in terms of serving God, was this idea of, what if we take from what we have and we give it back to God as an offering of thanks? This was all kind. And then Hevel says, yeah, but let's just tweak it slightly. What if when we bring it, we bring the best? But everything's built on Kind's idea. So where do you see Hevel? Where do you see him giving covet, giving thanks to Kind for having a great idea? You know, just interestingly, I, I read an article about Steve Jobs, and and one of the things that they said was that he, that he, that he really like went for, with the iPhone, for instance. They the the, the 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 name of this article was the Great Tinkerer. That's what they they called it because they were saying that really the technology existed already, but that what he was a master of was the consumer interface with the product. And one example that always stays with me because I, I really just appreciate just a little bit of his brilliance in this is that they were about to announce the iPhone for the first time, this literally this civilization changing product, right? And he calls off the entire event right beforehand which is like, you know, in the corporate world, that's like a major thing to do. Why? Because someone was showing him that when you put the, the headphone plug into the phone, it didn't go, it didn't make this sound. Click. You see, listen, listen to how intuitive this is and how in touch with the consumer this is. When it goes click, what do I know? I know it worked. <laughs> if I put in the jack and it doesn't go click, then I'm wondering, did it work? Did it not work? Now I have anxiety. Now I don't know if I do. I have to do it again? Do you understand? By the, by the way, just because I think this is a cool word if you don't know it, this is called ergonomics. Ergonomics is the study of how a consumer interacts with the product and people who are really great business people are constantly aware 
and want to give reassurances to the consumer as they interact with the product that they're doing it successfully. Okay? So that's an example of that. But the point is that all of this technology, for the most part, existed already. But like, so to speak, what, what, what Hevel's innovation was, was just how to maximize and perfect that idea which Kain had, which was the offering itself. So now let's put all these pieces together and, and we'll hear something good. What Reb Shlomo says is, is that when Moshe Rabbeinu bowed down before, Kain, before Yisro, he was acknowledging this long-standing debt of Hevel to Kain. He was giving him the honor that was owed him that hadn't been given him yet. And so after the Torah is given, you have all of these ultimate fixings to the entire fabric of reality going back to the first murder between brothers. Can you imagine? And here's Moshe Rabbeinu fixing this amazing thing by going to see Kain, going to see, Kain, going to see Yisro and bowing down before him. But now we have to go a step further. Are you ready for this? Listen, listen carefully. What did we say? What did we say? We said that time-wise, Yisro is out of order. It's an event that happened after Mount Sinai. And it's moved in the Torah before Mount Sinai. Because the Torah is showing us not just how to rectify our life, but how to fix past lives. Do you see that? Do you see how deep that is? That's crazy deep. That's crazy, crazy deep. And now let's revisit something that we learned earlier in this talk. When the Torah was given, it was smoking, which is the word ashan, which is Roshi Tevos, the first letters of Olam Shana Nefesh, space, time, and soul. Because the Torah itself is allowing us to access all of those dimensions. And remember, the Torah is the word Sinai, because that's where it was given. And Sinai is Sulam, Sinai. The revelation of the Torah is that ladder connecting heaven and earth so that we can bring the newness above the sun. There's nothing new under the sun, but above the sun, it's always new to bring that newness down below and be able to access through the Torah all of the different dimensions and to fix absolutely everything, not just our present, not just our future, but through the mitzvahs itself, we can fix our own pasts. During our lifetime itself, in our lifetime itself, and previous lifetimes as well. Because the Torah is the ultimate harmonizer the ultimate completer. And now, I want to go even deeper. How do we do it really? Because I told you, I told you that the world is still in the process of being completed. And 
we have to bring about the perfection of the world. And the way we bring about the perfection of the world, the most tangible step that we can make is by keeping the mitzvot, but also by becoming unified as a people. When we become one, that oneness reverberates throughout the entire universe. And I shared with you a teaching from the Jikover Rebbe, who Reb Shlomo called a supercomputer before there were computers. And he says that the Pasuk, the Jikover Rebbe, says that the verse which talks about the unity of the Jewish people before Mount Sinai, it says, Vayichan Sham Yisrael, one of the most important phrases in the whole Torah. Three words, Vayichan Sham Yisrael, which means, and the Jewish people encamped there, meaning in the context of the verse at Mount Sinai. Now, what's so fascinating and important about this verse is that the word that encamped is in the singular and not in the plural. We're talking about over two million people right now. It should be in the plural, the plural form of encampment, but it's in the singular. Why? And if you look at the Rashi there, Rashi says, because we were like one person with one heart. So there was total unity. And this is not just a passing detail. There was total unity, and it was a balmy 72 degrees that day, <laughs> and we were all looking forward to the revelation at Mount Sinai. No, no. This is an essential causative. In other words, because we were unified, we created this vessel for the light. We ourselves, through our unification, became that vessel. Remember, the word for vessel in Hebrew is kli. The Magali Amuko says kli is the letters chaf, lamed, yud, which stands for kohen, levi, Yisrael. In other words, all segments of the Jewish people were united, which made a kli, which made a vessel to hold the light of Mount Sinai. So when we are unified as a people, then the whole world changes because that oneness reverberates through the whole universe. Okay. Now, now I had some new thoughts about this that I want to share with you, and we're going to start to wrap it up now, which is how did we become unified? <laughs> we got to keep it practical, folks, right? So I'm going to read you the passage right now. And you'll see it, I think, pretty clearly, pretty clearly. This is, by the way, this is in Parshish Yisro, and it's chapter 19, verse 1. You can, you can read it yourself. Very, very direct, descriptive passage. In the third month from the Exodus, okay, so let's just, the first month is Nisan. Remember, the 15th of Nisan is Pesach, so we left Egypt on the 15th of Nisan. The next month is Er, and then the third month is Sivan. Right? It's on the 6th of Sivan that the Torah is given. So that's the third month. Okay. So in the third month from the exodus of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, on this day, meaning the first day of the third month, Rosh Chodesh Sivan, they arrived at the wilderness 
of Sinai. Okay? That contains the whole secret. Do you know what this secret is? If you make yourself like a wilderness, if you make yourself like a desert, if you make yourself like nothing, then you can achieve oneness with the people because your ego isn't getting in the way. It's not just, oh, do you know who I am? And who, who will I be sitting with today? <laughs> and who else is invited to this event? <laughs> no. The Jewish people made themselves like a desert. They made themselves like nothingness. And when you make yourself like nothingness, there isn't a person in the world who you can't get along with. Because there's nothing in the wilderness. You know what that means? There's no, you'd said this to me, and you did that to me. Nothing's there. It's a wilderness. And for sure, your ego isn't there. Now, I always feel compelled to say this next thought whenever I say that thought, or something like that, which is, that doesn't mean not to have self-esteem. You have to have self-esteem. Because humility in Torah means that you appreciate your own greatness, and from the standpoint of appreciating your own greatness, you realize that you're nothing. If you skip that step of appreciating your own greatness, and you just realize that you're nothing, buddy, that's just called having psychological problems. <laughs> that means you need to see a psychologist. Don't dare call yourself humble. Because that doesn't even approach what the Torah means when we're talking about humility. Humility is an exalted spiritual level, and you only reach it when you understand your own preciousness and your own greatness. And then from the standpoint of that, then you make yourself like nothing. Okay, so now I want to go even deeper. And I got very excited about this point, and I want to reinterpret a verse of the Torah, and we'll end with that. How did we realize that we were nothing? <laughs> I mean, we're giving the magic formula for the redemption here. First, we've got to be unified. Okay, great. I get it. We get When we're one, then the universe becomes one. I get it. We make a vessel. I get it. But how again do we become unified? Ah, by being like a wilderness. Got it, got it, got it. But how do we make ourselves like a wilderness? Okay. So now, I thought to myself... Remember, we've had, let's look into the structure of the Torah right now. I was wondering, what is the last thing that happens before it says we arrived at Mount Sinai? What's the last event that happened? Well, we know it's not Parshas Yisro, right? In other words, the arrival of Yisro to the Jewish camp. We know it's not that, because that happened after the Torah was revealed. So, sticking to the chronology of events, what is the last thing that happened before we became like a wilderness? And you ready for this? The event with a Moloch. Isn't that fascinating? Well, what's the last thing we said in this event with a Moloch? And that is going to give us our final clue. And if you look at 
chapter 17, verse 7, the Jewish people said, it says, we tested Hashem and we said, is Hashem with us or not? And you know what the very next word is? I'm not talking about the next page, the next chapter. I'm talking about the next word. After we said, or actually it's, it's the second word after. After we said, is God with us or not? Vayavo Amalek, and Amalek came. Amalek arrived. Of course, we know Amalek is the spiritual enemy of the Jewish people. We know Amalek, by the way, is gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word doubt, Suffolk. Right? But the point is, is that it wasn't a great thing to say. Is God with us or not? Because, you ready for this? Wherever you go, there God is. <laughs> that is the essential truth of our lives. Wherever you go, even to the darkest place, there God is. You're never alone. You're never alone. You're never alone. You're never alone. Okay. So, you know, we had a, a while to think about what we said to God. We had a while to think about it after it happened and after Amalek attacked us. And we had a lot of tshuva to do, a lot of thinking to do. Because the next time you pick up the story of the Jewish people, we're making ourselves like nothing. So where's the in-between step, folks? <laughs> and now I want to reread those words, okay? And show you the in-between step. So it's Hayesh Hashem Bikirbenu Im Ein. So the straight way, so to speak, of reading that is Hayesh Hashem Bikirbenu is Hashem present in our midst, Im Ein, or not. Right? That's the translation that we just did. But how about this reading? Which means Hashem is Yesh, Hashem is here. Birkirbenu, in our midst. Im ain, im, if so, aim. We're nothing. <laughs> if all that exists is God, then I'm just an emanation of God. I just dwell amidst God. Im ain, if so, I'm nothing. I'm just part of the great oneness. And now we're like a wilderness. And now there's nothing standing in our way from being one with each other because all the ego is God. And all the past tainas, all the past arguments are all gone. And now nothing is separating us from each other. Because if all that exists is God and that is all that exists, I'm just part of it and you're just part of it and we're just part of it together. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.